Hello and welcome back to the Future Work Life podcast and to mark the beginning of a new series, Series 12, we've got a return guest today. It's Bruce Daisley, former VP of Twitter, now known as an expert on all things work culture and the future of work. Bruce writes the newsletter Make Work Better. He's the host of the long-running podcast Eat, Sleep, Work, Repeat. He's the author of two Sunday Times bestsellers, The Joy of Work and Fortitude. And I've been following Bruce's work for a while now. We last spoke on this podcast, I don't know, about 15 months or so ago when I was right in the middle of writing my own book. And Bruce not only gave me insights, which I included in it, he also gave me some really great advice about the actual process of publishing and marketing books. So thank you to him for that. Thanks to him coming on the show again today because we of course share many similar interests in this space not least how organizations are responding to the continuing changes in how we're all working. Bruce like me spends a lot of time talking to leaders and organizations to understand how they're building connections between people and his new book Fortitude explores it from a slightly different angle actually. He looks at how that connection relates to this concept of resilience that we often talk about, not just in organisations, but society more broadly. And it's a perfect way to start the series in which there's a bit of a running theme and that relates to community. How we reframe what community means is becoming increasingly important to our work. And we discuss some of the reasons for that in the podcast today. You'll also hear Bruce and I talk about the relative pros and cons of working remotely, working in the office, and how companies continue to think about hybrid work. We also talk about the ongoing issue of meetings and specifically why we still have too many of them. And we explore other concepts which Bruce writes about in his book, like synchrony. And that leads us to briefly touch on the idea of group flow. We even discuss parenting. And uh, I asked Bruce for some advice about how we can build resilience or perhaps better put fortitude in our kids. So that's enough for me. Let's get into my conversation with Bruce. So Bruce, very nice to speak to you again this morning. We last spoke on this podcast around 18 months ago. Um, I'm wondering what the biggest insight is that you've had since then. Well, you know, I guess I spend my time sort of chatting to people about work and the intersection between work and their real lives. And so what we've done over the last 18 months, really, is just witnessed how organisations are trying to make sense of hybrid working and and how they're trying to make sense of trying to create good cultures in a very different era. And it's, you know, it's, it's a fascinating time actually, because I don't think there's any um, definitive answers on it and mm. organizations are trying to work these things out as they go. So, you know, I, I spend most of my time, every time I bump into someone, every time I meet someone, I chat to someone, I ask them what their work's approach is, how it's working, what are the, what are the things they're happy and unhappy with? Because it's, I just feel like I'm on a constant stage of trying to hear um, when organisations think they've got things right and when they feel like things aren't quite right. So mm. um, it's been a, a sort of 18 months of trying to listen and learn, really. Mm. What do you reckon? So I've, I've had those similar conversations and you feel like sometimes progress has been making it made and I'm making generalizations here of course you know you can only you can only generalize and some companies I suppose nail it better than others but are you more optimistic that we're on the right track now than you were 18 months ago or are you fearful that people and companies are losing their way 
I think, you know, if you wanted to paint the roses picture, you'd say, oh, as much autonomy as you could give people, the better it seems to be going. In my experience, some degree of coordination is the most important part of, of creating good culture. So some degree of saying you have to be in work on these days is seeming to create the best cultures. And sometimes people don't want to hear that. So, you know, mm. it doesn't necessarily have to be a, a set number of days. It can be one day or two days that is used productively together. But people sometimes don't want to hear that, Actually, it's better if everyone's in the office on Tuesday. They don't want to hear that. They want to hear that, oh, you know, they can do their work from wherever they want, whenever they want it. And you definitely can, but work seems to become more transactional when we don't have any degree of overlap. Now, look, it doesn't have to be a set number of days. Just to emphasize that again, it's more about when you are together, um, what you do with it. So, you know, a set number of days where people wave at each other, and there are video calls and they, um, they they feel like they've not chatted to anyone. That's got no value to it. You know, you're mm. much better off. I chatted to one organization who just comes together and has lunch together one day a week. And they have a long lunch that uh, dissolves into sort of discussions and, and sort of working. And that seems to work great for them. It's like three yeah. intense hours together each week seems to work well for them. So it's not about the amount of time, but it's about recognizing that coordination and being together seems to have a value to it and then from there working out how you can best use that that's what i've witnessed the best you know a lot of the Mm. organizations that have three days a week in the office that are mandated seem to be in a better place than the organizations that have no mandated times no mandated place and uh, people never see each other so you know that's the the paradox of that flexibility at the moment that too much flexibility seems to be strongly in favor of the individual, but strongly against any sense of group cohesiveness. Yeah. I, th- I think that's probably one of the insights I've seen or, or revealed over the past year, which is that obviously we all appreciate flexibility and we all enjoy the flexibility from a personal point of view, but it definitely has to be a two way thing, doesn't it? I mean, you know, mm. the, you have to accept that with flexibility come some compromises and that, you know, it's, it is obvious, as you say, that when we do get together and create new ways of getting together, that there's benefits. And I suppose on that point, you, you mentioned there that one organization just get together for lunch. I, I'm interested, always intrigued to hear what other ways people are finding to congregate other than just mandating coming into the office or not even necessarily mandating, just coming in. I mean, there's, there's been a lot of talk about whether if you work in a fully distributed organization, you come together once a quarter or every half year. Have you seen any other ways people are thinking about that in terms of getting together? Yeah, look, I mean, you know, critically, if your job is entirely individual, if your job is you're responsible, you know, you hear about, I guess, the old model of traveling salesperson that we saw in movies and and we witnessed where someone's just on the road all the time, then you can do that job fully remotely. And and it's not Mm. a question of it. But if you've got any sense of collaboration, most, (laughs) most British workers say that they do their work in a team and they and the team is an important contributor to how they work. So if that's the case, then being around that team is pretty important. And so one of the things we've witnessed is that if you don't do that, resignation rates are higher, people don't feel a sense of a bond. You know, the, the stuff we know well, which is 
the biggest predictor of whether you're engaged with your job is whether you've got a best friend at work. Mm. And work just becomes a degree more transactional and personal. There's nothing wrong with that being the case if that's the sort of work you want. Mm. But if you believe that your job or your company or your business survives on collaboration and and sort of collective intelligence of people in aggregate solving things, then you need to create that sense of cohesiveness amongst people. Um, how have people done it? Well, you know, I think things that probably have got um, a, a sort of precedent in the previous worlds, you know, going to the pub in the old days. Okay. What do we learn about it? Well, it's not inclusive. It's, it doesn't necessarily um, create a productive environment when, a, a culture is built on alcohol, but people spending time together in a social capacity seems to have a value to it. High high culture businesses tend to socialize with each other. So then saying, okay, well, how do we harness that? And so whether that is lunches, whether that is, you know, um, in work hours, creating more social connection events, these things seem to have a disproportionate impact in terms of creating a strong bond between people, really. Mm. You've written a bit about loneliness as well, um, and it's in, it's interesting again, isn't it? Because while we many of us have kind of grasped the opportunity to work from anywhere, usually what that means work from home, but certainly not necessarily congregating in the office every day. Many of us have taken that opportunity, but I think there's few of us who do that all the time. We don't experience some degree of loneliness, and obviously it can manifest in really very very challenging ways. What did you discover through writing the book and obviously these conversations and the research that you've done about loneliness and quite how severe a, an issue it can be? Yeah, um, you know, I, I guess it was always my personal experience. Um, Fortitude, which is sort of about the book is about resilience. It's about sort of trying to understand some of those things that we hear discussions about all the time that seem a bit nebulous. You know, the, the strange thing about resilience it's a bit like nuclear fusion in the sense that we know it exists because, you know, we, we can look up and see the sun. We, we know that nuclear fusion exists, but when anyone tries to replicate it, just they can't produce it. Or, you know, we, we spend billions and billions of pounds trying to, to create it. And that's a fairly good analogy. The U.S. Army spent billions of dollars trying to produce more resilient soldiers and it didn't work it's it's mm. had no impact people who've measured the effectiveness of similar programs in schools have said they haven't worked so you've got this strange thing where um we know resilience exists but producing it on demand is difficult and that's where my interest was in you know some of the things that are a consequence of that loneliness in its own way is is an example of an absence of resilience. And what you generally find is that we struggle to find resilience when we believe it's this individual thing. It's this thing where um, one person can be just stronger than another because they've chosen to be. What you generally find is resilience is a sense that we're connected to each other. Resilience is the strength we draw from each other. And when you recognise that, then you recognise, right, well, that's why loneliness has the impact of smoking 15 cigarettes a day on us. You know, mm. if we look at people who've been through difficult moments, whether that is uh, major heart operations or hospitalizations for other things, the biggest thing that helps us understand how they're going to be in two years, five years, is how many people they report feeling connected to, how many friends they've got, how many groups they're part of. 
Now, why that's the case, I think, is a mystery. You know, no one can necessarily sit there going, why would having more friends mean that your chance of heart disease is lower, your chance of cancer is lower? Why why that would that be the case? But um, we can see it so consistently. It's probably the big finding of social science in the last 10 years, the impact of uh, friendship groups and social groups on us. It's got an implication for work as well. Like you say, you know, if you've got a lot of people who are working remotely, who are increasingly isolated, they don't have a friend at work. Hybrid workers are less likely to report having a best friend at work. If we've created a version of work that's more lonely than ever before, then it begs the question, okay, can we keep the benefits of the flexibility of people not having to commute for hours at a time? Can we keep the benefits but also try to enhance it with a degree more social connection. And I think that's the interesting challenge at the moment we're in. Yeah, and there's there's definitely a growth of people with community in their job title, isn't there, as well? And and I suppose this is spilled over from some the certain digital products or online platforms which have been hiring community managers for a while. And that's definitely been more of a digital focused thing, you know, spin up a Slack group and have people connecting online and through yeah. it. Or, but so I suppose I'm, I'm interested if we are, let's assume that the trends which probably were evident before COVID definitely accelerated because of COVID, which are probably more distributed, more decentralized approach, decoupling work from employment, all these ideas which are basically about people are going to work for companies for you know, for for short for a shorter period of time, they're probably less likely to go into the office every day. If all of these things continue, is it possible to create that sense of community connectedness digitally as much as you could have done in person? Because I suppose this, if this is the new norm, where people just are simply going to be in person less frequently, are we just going to lose that? Do we have to accept this is one of the trade offs of this change, the change in the way we're all working? Um, I, I, I don't know. I mean, look, you know, I worked for a long time in, in social media. And the one thing that you can tell uh, from, from social media is that you can have a very intense uh, connection with people, sort of a strong relationship with people having never met them. But I think the critical thing is the um, the exchange that goes on. Normally, it's a sense of, you know, having a friend is about feeling understood by someone and mm. feeling that you understand them in return. And I think that's the critical thing. So if you feel like your work colleague that you never meet in person, but you interact with, they understand you, they've got a, a, a sort of an insight into your life, then I think you, you can feel a connection and a, a warmth, a community to them. It's more the sense that if our main experience of work is joining a Zoom call where there's 20 people on the call, Mm. And the only other person you chat to in that capacity is your manager or you have group discussions with people. You you just feel an absence. You'll know it well if you've attended events in person in the last year and a half. One of the things you recognize is you realize not only do you interact with the group, but you'll know I've not chatted to that person in person. And so you go over and you make sure you have an individual conversation with that person on the side you know it's about the things that we sometimes miss when we only operate as a as a collective we we sometimes miss the fact that oh I've not (laughs) not chatted to them I've not Mm. got to know them I don't know what makes them tick and I think these things aren't necessarily squeezed out completely by working digitally but we just need to put more effort into them because they don't feel as obvious to us yeah 
Yeah, I've been working um, with a team for about nine months, and having and they're based all around the world. Get on really well, have regular catch up calls, um, and connect very well with all of them. But we're meeting next month in New York. We're all collect uh, congregating there. I'm really looking forward to it. I'm looking forward oh, to being cool. able to just sit across a table and just connect in a different way. And I'm now somebody probably a bit like you, where I, you know, I, I'm out seeing clients or speaking at events and things like this, but I do spend a lot of time on my own in this, in this room, you know, doing writing or, you know, just doing my work. And so I enjoy, I really relish getting, getting together with people. And I think it's even, I think when it's when it's a team of people who you're speaking with consistently, I definitely I'm much more cognizant of the fact that I've never seen them in person. So yeah, when I do, yeah. it is a it is quite an, it's an unusual feeling which I never experienced before. And um, yeah, I'm really excited about doing that. Yeah, that's uh, good. New York yeah. as well, exciting. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, get get to get, get to go away as well. Yeah. I mean, look the the obvious for me, like, you know, we're when you've been working for a while and you've built up a network and you've got a certain level of expertise. I do think there are many advantages of working from anywhere from home. I mean, clearly, I, I still think for younger people entering the workforce and the workplace, it seems like that is the group still who are probably most negatively or who are negatively affected by this. And certainly, if you, if I think back to the companies that I've worked in over the years, Early on in your career, actually, when you moved to a new city, that was often how you've built your friendship group. Mm. Uh, what have you? What are you seeing in that area? And how are younger people reacting to this? And what are organisations doing well to support ensuring that even when in a hybrid work environment or potentially a remote work environment, younger people are catered for. You know, they're they're bringing people bringing people through in a way which allows them to integrate and and learn some of those soft skills which sometimes you do have just through working alongside people and communicating with people throughout the day consistently. Yeah, the the thing we're seeing really clearly in the data is that mentoring reduces massively when it's not done face to face. So, you know, any of us at any stage in our career, might feel like I can still improve here, I can still get better. And that appears to disappear. Both giving mentoring and and receiving mentoring goes down substantially um, when it's done by video. So, you know, if you are at the stage of your career, normally the, the, the way that we perceive the transaction of work is that you earn less at the start of your career while you're upskilling yourself and you try and upskill yourself as much as you can so you can earn more. And, you know, if you are interested in that side of the bargain, then face to face seems to have a massive value to it. Clearly, additionally, as well, uh, we've we've both mentioned the importance of building relationships face to face. So those things do have have a benefit. Now, this clearly uh, for some people, that's a trade off. You know, I've, I was chatting to someone last week who said that because their pol- their company has a policy that you need to be in the office one day a month. Uh, people are going to do their work in Mexico. They're going to do their work in mm. in Colombia. They're going to they're effectively traveling around the world, uh, living an incredible lifestyle. No one is going to say to that person, <laughs> "Oh, you'd be better off coming into the office three days a week because you'll be uh, you'll be more effectively mentored." So there is clearly a, a trade off. I think that's the critical thing. You know, if we reach a state of the world where there are some jobs that are far more flexible. Anyone can do them. They can fit them around their lives. They can do them in whatever hours they want. There's a clear benefit to the workforce, to inclusivity, to doing that. 
Mm. There are other jobs where <clears throat> there are more dependabilities. You know, if you're designing a product with someone else, if you're collaborating on a project with someone, then being around them seems to have a strong benefit to it. So what you'd hope based on that is maybe we'll just learn better to segment and compartmentalize jobs. Because as a result of that, if you could say to someone, actually, for the next six months, I've got my care responsibilities have gone up. I need to work completely flexibly, flexibly from a different time zone. And there's a job that can suit that. Then it's to everyone's benefit that we can all sort of slot around the requirements of what we've got. I, th- I think the interesting thing about what we've learned about work over the last three years is there, there are a whole series of assumptions about work that we make that we didn't even know were there. So specifically, location is an obvious one. We never used to think about location. You know, it, there was never a question of how many days are you going to be in the office? It's It's okay, I've started a new job. It's Monday to Friday. Therefore, I'm expecting to be in the office sometime around what, 9, 9.30 to sometime around 5.36. That was just like a given. Mm-hmm. But similarly, there's another couple of assumptions. You know, we um, we all use electronic calendars. We all use uh, email or Slack or Teams. We, we use electronic messaging. And the consequence of those things, we don't even notice they're there. You know, we consider that as the fabric of doing a job. But what it means is, is that um, constantly someone can see a gap in your calendar and put a meeting in for you. Or, you know, you might have some senior leaders in your business that you can't see their calendar and you feel somehow the, wow, it's, it, it feels inequitable that you're not allowed to see their calendar. Yeah. Um, but we don't even consider these things. So as a result of that, I've chatted to someone last week. I'm a big advocate of meeting free days. You know, in I've worked in with engineering teams in the past where they had meeting free Thursday. And so no one put meetings in on Thursday the, the sort of developer team loved it. It was their favorite day of the week. Um, and so, you know, I often chat to people about meeting free days and they say, but, you know, I'm not sure my business could sustain someone not doing any work all day. It's like, wow, that's a really interesting thing. Because what you've said is you perceive meetings as being a synonym of doing work. Yeah. And, you know, that the question I would pose to everyone is, are there... Is a meeting the same as doing work or is a meeting you some, something that you go and do to communicate about work? Um, and if if you're using meetings as a synonym for work, so you're effectively saying all of your decisions are made in meetings, all of your information exchange is, is done in meetings, then is there any surprise that people are feeling exhausted? Because, you know, if, mm-hmm. if you're going away on holiday with someone and you're expecting to talk to them 14, 16 hours a day, you'd say, yeah, that's exhausting i need moments of quiet i need moments of chilling i need you know talking and communicating all the time is exhausting so it's really strange that we would think that that would make a more effective version of working Hmm. i'm intrigued i know you wrote your first book and presumably had implemented many of the ideas that you shared in that book within your last role again let's let's just generalize for a moment it's easier but if you were building a team now how do you go about it? And I suppose I'm thinking about those different dimensions. For example, you know, how would you think about um, either mandating or not people coming into the office? How would you think about time? How would you think about asynchronous versus synchronous communication and meetings? Are there certain rules having just spent all that time immersed in 
you know, culture and had conversations with so many people over the past few years? I mean, what would be the basic kind of principles you'd apply if you were building a team now? Yeah, I, th- I think the first question, and one we often don't sort of focus on, is what's the job you want to get done? What What is it you're trying to do? Hmm. Because so often, I, you know, the, the example that I've been thinking about a lot recently is I remember really vividly um, hiring, we, we had a, a job of trade marketing to do. We wanted to get a certain message out really clearly to certain customers. And... Um, and so I hired someone to do it. And six months into the job, I didn't feel like she was making much progress. So I sat down and said, look, you know, how are you getting on? What can I do to help? And, uh, you know, like we've got this really clear objective of what we're trying to do. How can we help do it? And she said, I'll be honest with you. The volume of emails I get here is so overwhelming. And the amount of meetings I have here is way more than any other job I've been in. Um, I just don't feel I can do it. I've, I've made no progress at all. Wow, that's... <laughs> that's you know an illustration that something's gone wrong if someone has made no progress at all in the job that you hired them to do then you've configured work wrong and so that was you know simultaneous we were having a situation where people were really burnt out people were overwhelmed and exhausted and so the goal was right okay can we half the amount of time we spend in meetings right okay and and in the end we'd never achieved half it, but we were you know can we do something to reduce the amount of time people are spending in meetings and it involves difficult decisions everyone thinks the meeting they run is really important and everyone thinks that all the other meetings are boring and they're not really paying attention but if you've got a situation where people are in meetings doing emails then something's wrong you've either got too many electronic communications where you've got too many meetings and Mm. working out how you can eliminate that is way more important because whether you recognize it or not, that's having an impact on every single element of the job. So, you know, I'm always intrigued with organizations who say we're going to try and do something that no one else is doing and, and try and do things that other people aren't because, you can learn more from the, the people who disagree with stuff than the people who agree with stuff. Broadly, every culture, far more than you realize. I work, I work with sort of hundreds of companies in, over the last few years, and their culture is far more similar than you realize because their culture is defined by email or Teams and Slack and mm. calendars, almost yeah. all of them. And far more than you realize is basically as a result of that the same. Yeah, this conversation always makes me think of a couple of things. One, uh, I, I think a, a podcast of your, an episode of your podcast I listened to years ago with Aaron Dignan. I seem to remember, I can't remember, forgive me with the exact figures, but there was something insane, like the company that he was consulting with, they had on average about 40 hours of beating a yeah, week. Right. And my first thought is that's, that's a full working week in itself, just of meetings. So when the hell is the rest of the work being done? But the most in, the most enlightening thing was he there, and this is a very clearly a very difficult decision. I think they literally scrapped all the meetings and started from scratch just to see, you know, what what will break. People assume, people assume things are going to just fall apart, and I think they quickly realised that nothing broke. And actually, then if you only add the essential meetings, it was a far. I mean, look, they probably it gradually accrued again. I bet to a large number because, as you said, certain cultures encourage that but you start from zero again and perhaps you only end up at 10 15 20 yeah, that's right. and, and you realize that very little downside but actually significant upside because you free up people's time um 
the other point was I, I think I've, I've probably published the same article two or three times because it probably gets the most engagement out of anything I've ever written, which is my nine tips uh, to reduce the number of meetings. And there's some stuff in there which is purposefully there to piss people off or provide Go on. things like oh, things, things like having a having a countdown clock for the last five minutes of the meeting, a big countdown clock, because the worst thing, and this is even worse when it's your boss who's pushing the limits of the meeting time and you, you're hanging on and you know you've got another meeting and how stressful is it when you know that you're ticking mm. over and you've got to be somewhere mm. else, but you don't feel like you can hang up or leave the meeting room because it's somebody more senior. That's so stressful for people. And then they have to rush to the next meeting and it's this gradual cumulative effect where they build up the stress. And then the other thing I like about the online meetings is just literally having a hard stop. When you hit, when you hit the time, you just close the meeting. And uh, the, the thing is, it, things like this are, they seem a bit extreme, but like Aaron Dignan's point, it, it doesn't take that long before people just start appreciating other people's time better. So I just, yeah, anyway, that's right. This, yeah. That's right. I, I saw in a book about early days of Amazon that uh, Jeff Bezos had said in the early days of Amazon that the, he wanted to eliminate team, inter-team communication. So you would have communication with your team, but no other teams. And I love it because it's so subversive based on, you know, most teams spend their time communicating with other teams and they're not really communicating a lot. It's just week to week. They're having the same meetings. They're thinking of agenda points to bring in. They're filling their calendars with these sort of vague time killing information swaps or talking shops. Some people love talking, so it comes very easy to them. But are you getting the job done that you're you've been hired to do i don't think so and yeah you know a bit more discipline on that would be helpful yeah i'm going to pivot to a completely different subject but i just really i'm really intrigued to ask you about this so your book there's loads of interesting stuff in there but there was one of the really interesting things i read which was kind of related to parenting um, um, and about kids and resilience and how we talk about resilience with kids so I think one of the most challenging aspects for me of parenting is finding the right balance between supporting my children and shielding them from harm and discomfort, but also having this overriding sense that I want to prepare them for the real world and, and its challenges. And I, I just really struggle with getting that right balance. I'm just wondering how, you know, how fortitude, this idea of fortitude could help me and other parents who probably experience the same thing think about that challenge just getting that right balance yeah i mean the, the interesting thing is what you find is that um some degree of uh, adversity does seem to harden kids up so there seems to be a goldilocks zone where if you don't have any adversity in your life um it tends not to make you uh the, the most robust or hardy adult that's some of what we've seen but for the majority of us, a, a small amount of adversity is plenty enough to, to keep us going. Um, I think, you know, the interesting thing is there was a wonderful piece of work I saw that was done out of New Zealand. And it, they, they took this tall ship, the spirit of New Zealand, and they put kids on it for a week. You know, the sort of outward bound stuff that loads of schools do. And they, they got the kids to learn how to captain the ship and sort of... Um, skip of the ship and, and control it and you know what the kids were really learning was the the ability to work in a team when you've got loads of codependencies and and the importance of 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 those aspects for getting a job done and all they're really learning is working in a social environment 
mm. but it was transformational for the kids. You know, it's like, and we, we've witnessed these things ourselves, but those moments where people have a degree of discomfort, where they're learning to do something, but they learn collectively, they are far more capable than you believe possible. It has a huge uplift in terms of people's resilience. Look, you know, for, for, for my view, we would... I think it's a, a touch reductive of what I end up concluding, but we would make far more progress if we recognize resilience, the collective strength, resilience mm. as the strength we draw from each other. As soon as we start acknowledging that and recognizing it, it's actually more helpful for us to, to, um, to sort of help and diagnose what's going on. So, you know, what we witnessed in the pandemic was loads of kids felt completely disconnected in America. They had two years of homeschooling. Um, but, you know, so a lot of kids felt completely disconnected and it's created this mental health time bomb of me- mental health calamity. Um, whereas the uh, actually, you know, the more that we can get people, school kids connected with each other and learning from each other, the, the better really. So, um, you know, I, I would say, helping kids build face-to-face relationships and collective relationships seems to be one of the most helpful things. There was a, a great piece of work by a woman called Jean Twenge and, uh, and she did this work during the pandemic. And, it, you know, because of everything we learned about the pandemic, by the time she came to do this research, uh, she was convinced that the pandemic was going to be a mental health disaster. And she found actually for teenage kids, the first couple of months of the pandemic were really strongly enriching. They, uh, their resilience went up, their depression went down. And she looked into the data and actually it was a bit more complicated than that. Kids who were having an evening meal with their families each night saw their resilience improve mm. and they're sitting down with their siblings or their parents, their carers. And the kids who um, weren't having that saw the opposite. They, they saw, you know, their sense of isolation, their depression, all of these things went up. So it just, it, it helps. It serves as a reminder for us really that resilience is the strength we draw from each other. And the, the more we're reminded about that, um, the more it serves to, I think give us a really clear pointer of the approach we should take with kids. Mm. Yeah, I had an interesting meeting this morning, actually. We, my, my youngest is starting school in September, so you can go in and meet, meet your teacher and obviously talk about if there's any concerns or any sort of aspects of the personality. And we made the obvious, uh, observation about our four-year-old that he's, you know, he's very confident when he's in an environment that he knows, but fundamentally he's just, he likes a safe space. You know, he likes being at home and he likes, it takes a while for him to warm up to, you know, that's a nursery environment, a school environment. Once he's there, he's happy. And, you know, the, the look of recognition on the teacher's faces, because clearly there's a, they've had this same conversation with, you know, 60 other sets of parents yeah. who are coming into school who, you know, this age group, you know, he was a young, you know, he's a toddler, or actually a baby during COVID. And I guess these are the sort of things that are going to play out over years, aren't they? Where, you know, each of, I've got three kids, 10 and seven as well, and they all, they're all affected in slightly different ways. And, uh, yeah. Yeah, I guess that will build a certain type of resilience, um, yeah, particularly yeah. as they come back together. So, yeah, interesting. Well, synchrony, by the way, you mentioned it in your book, and it feels like quite an important thing. And I feel it's related to everything that we're discussing here. 
Synchronies, when we feel like we're on the same wavelength as someone, um, it's transformational. You know, it's it's a bit like when you're in person with someone, you're talking and you see a flash of recognition in their eyes or you see them light up. Hmm. When when human beings feel in synchrony with each other, it seems to be the thing that connects us. So, you know, it's really interesting. You know, I mentioned earlier, um, one of the biggest things that seems to protect us from loneliness and and ill health is a sense of connection with other people but if you put people into a a group um of people they don't feel that they share something in common with it doesn't have the effect so you know if you suddenly say to someone you need to turn up and go to this cycling group or this gardening group if you're not interested in cycling or gardening the effect is lost from it so synchrony is the sense of feeling uh connected with each other And, and you see colossal evidence of the impact it has on humans so you can put a group of rowers in an environment where they're on rowing boats uh, rowing machines if you say to them just i want you to row for 10 minutes um it has a fundamentally different impact on them than if you say i want you to row in stroke with each other in synchrony with each other the second form has a um the endorphin levels are way higher people's sense of excitement is way higher it's transformational. The experience yeah. is fundamentally different. And so, you know, when we feel in synchrony with other people, it's it's elevating. And look, you know, a couple of obvious examples. If you ever find yourself sitting on the sofa with someone, you're enjoying a TV show, you're enjoying a movie, you're at the cinema, wherever you are, they pull out their phone and start looking at their phone. Why would that annoy you? But there's a moment when when someone has been in synchrony and, it, and they break synchrony, we find it frustrating. We yeah. love feeling like we're experiencing the same. You turn out and you have a you turn up for lunch with someone or dinner for someone and they say they're not drinking today. Look, no judgment on any of that. But when people aren't in synchrony with us, we'd rather right. do what they're doing. We'd rather not drink if they're not drinking. Yeah. Um, but, you know, a, another example is we don't like being in synchrony with people we don't feel comfortable with. If you're walking down the street and you find yourself in step with someone else, you know, it's quite uncomfortable and you'll break step. You'll slow down, you'll speed up to try not be in synchrony. So when we feel that we're in synchrony with other people, it's an elevating experience. It's, it's that reminder that we are connected with some uh, someone. And just knowing that that's a fundamental part of being human and that it's how we derive our strength gives you some degree of recognition because then you're like, okay. So the way a lot of people get in synchrony is they share a meal together. A way that a lot of people get in synchrony is they go and watch something together and they they experience it simultaneously. As soon as you know that, then you think, okay, well, that's <clears throat> it's quite a versatile way to get to know human behavior and human interactions. And I think, you know, it, it's a sort of, it's an important route to understanding human psychology, I think. Mm. Yeah, I wrote a little bit about this actually in my book because I'm, I'm sort of generally fascinated with the idea of flow, getting into flow. And obviously, Chick sent me high wrote you know the book Flow, and I've, I've interviewed a guy called Stephen Kotler. I'm not sure if you'd come across him, yeah. um, and he's done some really interesting work around that. And I, I always sort of thought about it from a personal point of view. And actually, that stuff around deep work and focused work, it all sort of aligned with me as in, you know, here, how can I optimize a way that allows me to, you know, perform, you know, better and be more productive and free up more time in the rest of my life. But actually, some of the more interesting stuff or the things I've been more become more interested in is around group flow. And it's absolutely related to synchrony. And I think that's when. And I think this is a lead. There's a massive, clearly a leadership lesson in here. 
not not just in terms of how you bring people together when you're in a room, but I suppose when you're w- working in a remote or hybrid organization, how can you create that common sense of purpose? You know, I think that's the thing. This is where purpose isn't the wishy-washy, fluffy thing that some people think about it. It's, you know, what's this shared objective, this shared vision, this this thing around which we can align and, you know, and, and feel the synchrony. And, um, you know, I definitely think that's a skill which again, many of us are still wrestling with and many leaders are still wrestling with. Like, how do you create this thing, this synchrony in this new world? Um, yeah, that's it. That's it. I, th- I think probably what we're broadly saying is that um, synchrony is the collective form of flow to some extent, you know, yeah. like, because, you know, but yeah, absolutely. You'll, you'll know how uh, satisfying. There was a great book last year called The Power of Fun by a woman called Catherine Price. And mm. she talked about how, you know, fun is such a sort of life affirming part of our lives, but most of us set about sort of trying to eliminate it from, you know, we, we have weeks where we have no fun at all. And yet Mm. for her, uh, fun was about um, connected, uh, connected flowing uh, activities that, yeah, yeah. They were back. So she had three words. I forget what the other word was, but absolutely it's about sort of connected, joy yeah. really mm. yeah i mean it sounds a bit idealistic sometimes when i talk about it but this is why i think work and life should if we can find a way to get them to work together then they're complementary i mean it's the thing mm. i think you always think about the best the best times you have at work typically as we you know going back to the beginning of the conversation are when we feel like we're aligned with people having fun that we're you know that there's a connection there and that tends to bring out the best in people and i think that's so I think sometimes this is a struggle because there's burnout, case of burnout on the rise. People feel overworked. You know, there's a cost of living crisis. All of these challenges, people are worried about their jobs. And of course, this puts pressure on people and then they feel like they're being squeezed and come and, and it's, you know, and with that backdrop, it is difficult to think that, you know, this should all be about fun. And if, if you just have more fun, then it'll be better work. I know it's, you know, it's difficult, it's difficult to reconcile all of it. Exactly together. that. Exactly yeah. that. Well, no, Bruce, pleasure as always to chat. I'm just, uh, is there anything else you, you want to leave us with, either related to the book or anything we talked about? Yeah, I mean, look, you know, I, I'm, I always welcome people getting in touch and sort of sharing their experience, what they're doing, what their work's doing. Um, and, and, you know, you, you're, you're similarly interested in these things. It's, sort of, it's always interesting to hear uh, almost every organisation I chat to has broadly got the same issues and is broadly tackling them in the same way. And that's why I always love it when organisations are doing something very different because it's far less common than you realise. So, yeah. Uh, yeah, so I'm always open to hearing from people either on LinkedIn or directly on my website. Yeah, yeah, it's always interesting to hear people's experiments. And that's the thing, I think is. continuing to experiment will be the key, I think, for the, for the facility. Thanks, Bruce. Lovely to chat to you again, Ollie. So thanks again to Bruce for joining me today. Always a pleasure. Next week, I've got another really interesting guest talking about the future of work and specifically about workforce ecosystems, why and how the structure of organizations is changing and what that means for the future of businesses and careers. So make sure you tune in again then. In the meantime, have a great week.